Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater was founded in 1958 and quickly became one of the world's leading modern dance companies, known for signature works like Revelations, which told the story of the African-American experience through the medium of dance. A new documentary by Jamila Wignot called simply Ailey looks at the life and work of the company's founder through archival footage, interviews with company members, and Mr. Ailey himself. It opens tomorrow at Film at Lincoln Center and at the Angelica Film Center, and I'm very pleased to welcome the film's director, Jamila Wignot, to our show now. Hello. Wonderful to be here. You've made a lot of documentaries for PBS. How did you come to Alvin Ailey as a subject? Oh, uh, well, actually, I was approached by fellow PBS documentarians, Stephen Ives and Amanda Pollock, mm. who are the principals at Insignia Films. And they came to me in 2017 and said, you know, we're looking for a director for a film about Alvin Ailey. And what do you think about that? And, you know, my head exploded into confetti because <laughs> I thought it was, you know, one of the most extraordinary films to come my way. Um, I'd been a fan of the company um, since college. And so... I was just thrilled. So you'd seen the company perform, but is this the first feature length documentary about his life and his work? It's, it's the, it's the first feature length documentary about his life and work. There've been um, other documentary films that have included um, a treatment of Mr. Ailey focusing mostly on revelations. And then um, Orlando Bagwell also made a, a television documentary in uh, the nineties but this is sort of the first to to approach his life in this way. He was born in Rogers, a small town in Texas I've never heard of, in <laughs> 1931 during the Depression. What was his early life like? What was it like, in fact, for him as a young black kid? Yeah, I mean, I think it was um, a very mixed experience. 1931, uh, Rogers, Texas, it's the Depression. It is also uh, Jim Crow. So this nadir moment of extreme uh, brutality and violence and terrorism, um, you know, of black people that is um, happening all across uh, the South. Um, his your father uh, abandoned, you know, the family before he was born. Um, and so he and his mother really led this very kind of nomadic experience, um, moving from, you know, one small town to the next, really um, in search of work for her. Uh, so it was really just the two of them. Um, Wait, she worked yet, in cotton fields and, and yes, clean houses. And as a domestic and, you know, hmm. basically whatever labor um, she could find to support them. Um, hmm. And, you know, yet at the same time, what's so extraordinary is that as a young boy, he's clearly very alive and open to the world, you know, as he remembers it. And he has these, you know, extraordinary experiences of, of loneliness and pain, but also these beautiful and wondrous discoveries of um, joy and I think a real sense of, um, you know, and an exposure to the kinds of things that define Black life, you know, so music and uh, church and family and love. Um, and so it's this kind of light and dark um, that really kind of shapes his earliest years and, and becomes, you know, profoundly important to the work he's going to create later on. You include excerpts of, of Ailey talking about those early years. Are they from TV interviews? 
The excerpts we use um, are actually from a series of audio recordings he um, made in the last year of his life, so 1988 to 1989, as he was working to create an autobiography of his life. Um, And so he talks about his life in public interviews, but in these tapes, it's a kind of exercise of um, memory and almost a kind of teleportation back to uh, to those times. And you really sense there's a, there's a kind of relaxed quality to it. And, and it feels as if he truly has through conjuring memory kind of found himself physically back well, in those spaces. Well, since he felt very isolated as a child, didn't he find refuge in the church, which I assume was the source of some of the music he later choreographed to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the church is a huge source of strength uh, for him and his family. They obviously, I mean, his mother, you know, they attended uh, every Sunday. I think he's um, both um, in, you know, inspired by the the music that he hears there, but also the theatricality um, of, you know, of Sunday service. And at the same time, he's also discovering, um, you know, secular music, juke joints and, and these kind of itinerant musicians who come through town and, and put on these shows. They moved to Los Angeles when he was 12. Was that when he decided he wanted to become a dancer? I don't think he decided in that moment that he wanted to become a dancer, but he is certainly being drawn to this form. Um, He, through school programs, gets to go, you know, downtown and he starts taking in, um, you know, the dance that's available, uh, largely ballet. Um, and he's clearly um, very taken with it um, and and but not yet ready to to commit. That comes later. He talks about seeing Catherine Dunham perform and how that was a revelatory experience for him. Why was that so important? Yeah, I mean, this is just one of the wonderful things about Mr. Ailey's life, these kind of these kind of serendipitous moments that happen. It's important because, you know, he's taking in all of this dance and yet there is no one on those those ballet stages that looks anything like him. So he's in love with this form, but you know, it's, it's clearly not something that's accessible and available to him until he sees this poster of this black dance troupe and finds his way inside and is just stunned to see, um, you know, a stage filled uh, with black dancers and importantly with black male dancers, you know, Hmm. who's, technique and agility and and sensuality he's really taken by. Um, And I think it's this moment where he realizes, oh, you know, there is some possibility. I think that moment is, you know, dance is possible for me. How old was he when he began studying dance at the Lester Horton studio in Los Angeles? He was um, much older. He's in um, high school then. So about I think Mm -hmm. he's 18 or so um, when he starts, which is which is late by today's standards. You include interviews with Carmen de Lavalade, who knew him during that time and later became a member of his company. What did she have to say about him? Yeah, you know, Carmen is so wonderful, um, Mr. Lavalade, because she is somebody who, you know, sees Mr. Ailey as he's, you know, participating in gymnastics, a kind of rhythm gymnastics, and she sees the dancer in him. And so, you know, what she contributes is a real understanding of a kind of um, talent that she witnesses in him. And then she's, you know, the person who pushes him and says, you got it, you should do this and come with me. I'm dancing at this place, the Lester Horton Dance Theater, and, you know, come, come check it out. So she's a kind of entry point for him into the studio that will be where he 
you know, finds his training and and truly decides to give himself over to this form. Was he already aware that he was gay? Yes. And in the film, you know, we treat that he had a an early uh, sort of childhood sexual experience with um, with a young boy in Texas. Um, and so he's had a sexual awakening um, by that point, for sure. He came to New York City in 1954 and studied with Martha Graham and others. Uh, within four, just four years, he decided to found his own company. Yes, extremely ambitious, isn't he? <laughs> in some in yes. some regards. Um, yeah, How old and I was think, he? you know the thing that's uh, he was only in his twenties at that point. Hmm. Um, and you know, I think what's so tremendous about New York at that moment was that you know there is a dance explosion that's happening, but um, there's also just a sense of you can do it. You know, you can create a, a collective of dancers. You can stage um, shows. Uh, and so, I, you know, I don't know that he's ready to say, you know, I don't know that he had imagined at that point the Alvin Ailey company as we understand it today. But um, certainly the possibility of, you know, bringing a troupe of dancers together and staging works, um, it, you know, is, is extraordinary. Well, was that because he felt that existing dance companies weren't doing the kind of work that he wanted to do? I think he felt like the kind of experiences he had um, uh, and his sense of himself as an African-American is not something that he was sort of seeing. You know, as he says, uh, he had something to say um, the, about about the life that, you know, that he had experienced. And he thought it was, you know, um, valid, something valid uh, to center on, you know, on the dance stage. And and uh, depart to some degree from what was what other dance companies were doing. I think you know it's not that it's a departure or that he um, kind of innovates a new dance technique. Um, in his his dance is more of a style and it's a synthesis really of all of the kinds of flavors of things that he's picked up, um, you know, from the various dance masters that he had exposure mm -hmm. to. But was part of his goal to establish a company for black dancers? Yes, I think so. I mean, you know, as there's there's, uh, you know, tons of talented black dancers in the New York City area at this time. And there isn't a lot of a lot of opportunity um, for them to participate in dance kind of in the in this sort of, uh, you know, sort of high art uh, category in which mm -hmm. we think of it. There's a lot of opportunities to, you know be on the stage and Broadway in pretty demeaning roles. Um, and I think he recognized the talent around him um, and thought, you know, I can gather a group of people together and we can start dancing, you know, dancing our own works. And wasn't it exclusively black dancers at the beginning, only later becoming a multiracial company? Yeah, in the beginning of um, the company, it was um, exclusively black, although I don't think he would have considered that by design. You know, Lester Horton's dance company in the West was actually the first multiracial dance company, uh, modern dance company in the country. So, you know, Ailey was already very uh, comfortable having danced in integrated spaces. Um, and I think it's only natural that his company evolves into that and that that's something he was always open to, uh, you know, in a trailblazer in that way as well. But, but uh, I assume that venues weren't always easy to come to. Didn't his new company perform first at the 92nd Street Y? 
Yes, they did. Um, and I don't think wonderful that it was, place. Yeah, I, I've done yeah. many things at the 92nd Street Wise, so I, I have great respect. But still, it's not the same thing as being invited to perform at Carnegie Hall or one of the, uh, the places where dance was generally performed. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, that is true. And also, I think it's important to remember that modern dance is still kind of in its, mm. <laughs> um, you know, or kind of early stages in a way. Um, and so, so for sure, you know, what's interesting, I think, about the Ailey Company is that they are embraced overseas first, really, before they are embraced, um, you know, mm. stateside. One of the, his, the first dances he created for the new company was Blue Suite, which was set to blues and jazz. Why was that considered a radical departure from modern dance at the time? Uh, I think because he was, you know, valorizing a, a, a kind of fundamental uh, aspect of African-American cultural heritage. Uh, and it, it's sort of challenging the hierarchies uh, uh, of, of what one would stage uh, in modern dance. You know, I can only, you know, compare it to, say, Martha Graham, who's doing works that are more kind of, uh, you know, uh, inspired by say Greek gods or something. <laughs> um, and he's really rooting it in his own tradition and, and choosing to center that story on the stage. He isn't the first modern dancer to treat the black experience on the stage, but um, I think there's something just kind of uh, emotional and physical and visceral about, about the work he did and, and choosing to use that music um, yeah, that, that was, uh, you know, significant. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My guest is Jamila Wignot, who is the director of a new film called Ailey that opens tomorrow at both film at Lincoln Center and also the Angelica Film Center. And there'll be Q&As uh, uh, at both places, which we will discuss a little later, I think. Um, but um, I, I want to get back to the, the, his establishment as a major figure, in 1960, he created Revelations, which was considered his masterpiece and, and is still performed by the company. Why was the piece considered groundbreaking? I think, again, it's sort of the, the kind of um, emotional and physical impact uh, of that dance. And this 30-minute this um, sort of extraordinary saga in which, you know, really the kind of full history of the African-American experience, it feels like takes, takes place. Um, it's a story that begins in, you know, sort of deep sorrow. Um, it's, it's these beautiful, you know, bodies with these upstretched hands, you know, reaching for something, be, you know, that is beyond them. Um, and as we watch, uh, the dance evolve um, through its various chapters, you know, you sort of witness deep, deep aspects of, of really the, the black religious experience. And, and the, the piece concludes in this kind of uh, ecstatic expression at the end of um, a real sense of joy and a kind of coming together of community. Um, and I just think it was something that, um, you know, had, had never been staged before, you know, in quite that way. Um, there's a real kind of drama and theatricality and accessibility uh, to that work uh, that I think, uh, you know, keeps keeps audiences coming back for more and more. And then there's the, the fact that it's set to some pretty 
wonderful spirituals like wade in the water and I've been buked and I've been scorned. Yes, absolutely. I mean, music is very central to all of, uh, of Mr. Ailey's dance works. Um, you know, and some, sometimes he begins with the music and then a, a dance kind of evolves out of the, the feeling and the emotion that that music is, is inspiring in him. Now, the company quickly gained acceptance. And didn't the State Department uh, send them on a tour of of the Far East and Australia, were they seen as cultural ambassadors and maybe also um, perhaps a defense of uh, accusations that the United States had had racial problems? Right. I mean, this is the kind of interesting uh, contradiction of this moment for the company there. They uh, go on their first uh, State Department tour in 1962. Uh, sent to the Far East uh, at a moment in which the United States is not fully engaged in, uh, you know, what would become the full kind of uh, Vietnam War, but certainly um, the kind of early stages uh, of that conflict are there. And and it is very much a part of, um, you know, a diplomatic campaign to to show the ways that, yes, the U.S. is is not you know, what we understand in terms of the history of um, the black experience, that the U.S. Is, is not that and that we are a kind of beacon of freedom. And so there's a real irony and contradiction in there. Um, at the same time, um, you know, I think I think Mr. Ailey leverages that tour uh, for his own means um, and he presents uh, to the world, uh, you know, a kind of portrait of the black experience that is, you know, sort of is, is the earliest, you know, black is beautiful. There he is, you know, showcasing that for the world, dancing it on stage, giving access to, you know, I think the, the, the aspects of life, you know, things that define um, black life, the, the kind of very human and universal uh, uh stories that that his dances tell is a way of it's a it's a kind of resistance i think um so the state department has its goals but he certainly has his goals as well well i assume that the fact that uh lyndon johnson was the president at the time and was pushing through some uh, civil rights legislation uh, another texan from small town uh that that may have been a factor as well yeah, well, I mean, this PR is 62, in a way. 62, so it's slightly before any of that. Uh, mm. uh, it's slightly before that, actually, um, you know, which is interesting. Um, the well, company is in advance of all of those, you know, that significant civil rights legislation that will that will pass. And they also toured extensively around the United States. And, and we know from accounts of black musicians who toured the country that that wasn't always easy. Did they encounter problems finding places to stay and to eat because they were a multiracial company? Yeah, I mean, there were certainly instances of that, um, you know, when they toured in, in the South, which they did on occasion, but also when they toured in the no in in places in the North. Mm. Um, you know, and one of the things that was interesting to hear was um, the, the, the company manager and, and eventual executive uh, director, Bill Hammond, talks about the fact that one way of circumnavigating that and protecting the dancers was that in advance of um, the company arriving to any given city, he would actually send photographs and clippings um, so that hotels 
in particular would know, okay, this is what this company looks like. It's an integrated company. Um, and, you know, presumably if a hotel had a problem with it, then they wouldn't be able to they be booked there. there. But it was a way of, I think, really protecting the dancers from the incredible insult uh, of, you know, not being able to stay in a hotel in a town where they're actually going to be performing. And they weren't alone in experiencing that. I did a show recently on Billie Holiday, who was already a, a superstar when she was still being forced to stay at people's homes when her some of her musicians could go to the hotel. Yeah. I mean, frankly, I, my family wasn't fed in a restaurant in 1989 in Boston. <laughs> 1989, uh, that so, late? That late. So. And in a northern city, Boston? And, wow. in, and in Boston. So... Uh, <laughs> You know, the more things change. <laughs> <laughs> well, Boston had problems with integration, but we won't get into that story. You include interviews with a number of company members from those early years, including Judith Jameson and, and Sylvia Waters. Uh, what did they tell you about their experiences working with him uh, and about the company as a whole? Yeah, being able to interview those two in particular was such a gift because they, you know, are both um, such, uh, you know, keepers of the of the legacy and have really dedicated their lives to, you know, the company's continued success uh, after Mr. Ely's passing. And so, you know, they basically they shared a sense of, you know, the kind of um, extraordinary and, and all embracing and kind of loving figure that he could be the sense that as dancers, they felt he saw something in them and each of them expressed this, that they weren't necessarily aware of about themselves. Ms. Waters, you know, talked to us about, you know, Ailey selecting roles for her that she wasn't quite sure, uh, you know, were appropriate or could she pull them off? And, and that there was that incredible feeling of being seen by him um, for something that, that you had inside of you uh, that maybe you weren't aware of. And at the same time, um, you know, discovering in in talking with them and the other um, members of the company that we interviewed, uh, the kind of extraordinarily private um, person that Ailey was throughout his whole life. Was he a difficult taskmaster? Uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, he was no, for people in the dance world uh, who know of uh, the stories of Jerome Robbins uh, being a difficult taskmaster, he wasn't that, but he could be very... Uh, you know, snide. I think the most often, the comment that most <laughs> of the dancers shared was like, uh, what is it? Oh, thank you, Miss Jameson. Uh, could you dance my choreography now, please? <laughs> A way of just saying like, you're not even anywhere close. Like, I don't know what you're dancing, but that's not what <laughs> this piece is. <laughs> but we also get a sense that he had close relationships with his dancers, since the only close family he had was his mother. Did he see the members of his company as friends and even family? Yeah, I do think that um, he built uh, a sense of family. And I think, um, you know, that was important to him. And yet at the same time, I do think he kind of kept himself at a reserve. I think he liked, uh, he was in this position of being this kind of encouraging, doting, almost father figure. Um, and so there was this quality to him that 
you know, he had these expansive arms, you know, I mean that metaphorically, this kind of large embrace that he had for all of his dancers um, and being a real champion of them and their journeys. But again, it, it sort of wasn't a two-way street. There was still always a part of him that um, mm. he sort of kept separate. Well, there isn't a whole lot about his personal life outside the company in the film. Was that because it was difficult to find that information or because was, his work was his life? Yeah, um, it was difficult to find that information from the company members. Um, and also, I think we really wanted to sort of stay with the things, as I say, that, you know, in, in those audio recordings that we had access to, it was in, interesting to think about, you know, what Ailey himself felt were the most salient aspects of his of his life and, and what he shared. Uh, and when it came to kind of his personal life and his sexuality, there's this, you know, beautiful recounting of this, this early childhood experience. And then there's this moment, you know, in the, in the aftermath of a friend of his, you know, dying at a, you know, in their forties and him kind of confronting his own mortality and realizing that, oh, in fact, he hadn't, um, he hadn't invested very much time in cultivating, um, you know, intimate relationships of any kind. And he, and he, he meets this, um, man in Paris and, and hopes, you know, as he says, it was going to be the perfect relationship. And then he is actually abandoned by that lover. Um, and so there is a sense that, uh, you know, he's, he's, he really truly did sacrifice everything, uh, for, for his art. Uh, and he gave most all of himself to that. And the film indicates that he had a kind of a breakdown after his relationship with Abdullah mm. ended and was he even hospitalized for a time. Yes, Is that he something was. that was generally known at the time? Oh, yes. It was um, it was a very um, public uh, incident. Uh, it was definitely known at the time and it was in the papers. Um, uh, and there had been kind of signs, you know, all along. Um, you know, as some of the dancers said, these kind of darker moments, uh, you know, where, mm. you know, as I think Hope Clark shares, it was like there was a, another person inside the person, um, you know, she said, sort of witnessing those moments. But yes, something certainly fractures for him um, by the 80s. And I think it's just a combination of the isolation, the extraordinary pressure that he's under. Um, and, you know, interestingly, to hear it from him, a real sense of a kind of inability to reconcile, you know, where he had come from and the and the conditions that shaped that life with where he had arrived at. This is a kind of interesting way of thinking about like the American dream, right? And kind of upward mobility and being able to to, you know, arrive at a place that's so far from your origins, but then how do you reconcile those two worlds? And I think, you know, part of the conflict for him was that, you know, as he says, coming from where I come, come from and, you know, feeling like nothing and then dancing, you know, at the Champs-Élysées, you know, the kind of distance between those two worlds, um, I think was hard for him to, to reconcile. Was he deserving well, of where he had arrived, you know? He didn't feel deserving, you think, despite all the. I, I think there's a sense of imposter syndrome there that's that's quite mm. deep for him. There's a clip from in the film from an interview in which he's asked, 
did you have to sacrifice anything to stay and dance? And he says, everything. Yes. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting to think. And then he sort of laundry lists for uh, the interviewer, you know, what that what those sacrifices are. And the last one is, is personal relationships. I mean, it is total uh, for him. Well, running a company and then going on tour for months would make it rather difficult to uh, maintain close personal relationships, wouldn't it? I think absolutely. And the, and the endless, um, you know, at that time, you know, the, the, the endless hustle for fundraising and producing works and, you know, having to be the star and having to be the face and being this kind of um, symbol uh, you know, the kind of he is, you know, in this case, the sort of lone black figure that's there. Um, there can only be one, it feels like. Right. And he's that. And that's just, an, you know, I think um, it's just a, a huge responsibility. Um, and I, I think that that, you know, wore him down by that point. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Jamila Wignot, Jamila Wignot, who is the director of a new film called Ailey that opens tomorrow at Film at Lincoln Center, and then and also at uh, the Angelica Film Center uh, at 18 West Housen Street. And Jamila, later it's going to be broadcast next year on PBS's American Masters. Yeah, uh, that's correct. We're actually going to also open nationwide in August. Um, so across the country, and then eventually will be um, the film will be available to audiences on PBS. So it's a dream, a dream rollout. <laughs> L- listening to that music, I would have identified it immediately as something that he would have used uh, to dance to. How how much of an influence did he have on the sound of the or, or the the arrangements of the music that uh, the dancers were dancing to, and was he involved in? things like hiring the musicians? Uh, yes, he was. And, you know, for a long time in the early days, uh, he actually toured with um, brother John Sellers, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a notable uh, blues musician. So so he was involved in that. But, you know, he also just used a lot of, um, you know, popular music as well, uh, which is which is you know, amazing. I, there were stories that we don't have in the film, but, you know, of dancers talking about 
him them bringing him a you know a new record that they were listening to and and putting him onto music and um and that he would come in sometimes and he would just you know play play music in the studio um that wasn't he didn't have a dance going yet um but just sort of listening to different music and and using that as a source of inspiration being a gay black man uh... I'm assuming was even a bigger problem at the time than it is today. But uh, being in the dance world would have made it a little easier, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think that's an interesting um, question or that, that kind of comes up with this this notion of what it means to be publicly out. Um, hmm. You know, was he mainly, out? he was out to everyone in, uh, you know, in his in the dance world, uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, everyone in the company knew, um, and I don't think it's, you know, in the dance world, I don't think it was that, um, remarkable. Um, but the, the kind of concept that we have today of what it means to be publicly out, you know, that wasn't something, um, that it seems, you know, folks of his generation, um, you know, including other white, you know, gay choreographers, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Paul Taylor and, and Merce Cunningham, you know, it, nobody was stepping to podiums and then identifying themselves as, you know, the gay choreographer such and such, um, <laughs> you know, because if you think about it, you know, Mr. Ailey starts his company in 1958. I mean, it, it just it's it's inconceivable then, you know, that's 10 years before Stonewall you know, to put it into a kind of political perspective mm -hmm. around um, the gay rights movement. So, um, so he did have to live. Well, he already that. had to overcome the fact that he was a black choreographer, let alone being gay as well. Right. I interrupted you. Uh, you want to Oh, no, no. I was just saying, yeah, I mean, I think that that is, that. you know, there's no, there isn't really at that time a, a concept of um, intersectionality. I don't think, um, you know, I, I don't think it was conceivable for him to be, um, you know, uh, publicly open about that. I mean, I just can't imagine who would be the the board members and the funders. And certainly the State Department is not going to be, you know, and they actively were, um, you know, prohibiting him from from being, you know, it was something that was in his FBI files that, uh, you know, hmm. it was not something they were encouraging him to express. There could be actual, you know, repercussions uh, for him uh, if 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 there was kind of an, a, a, a public awareness. Um, and yet, as I say, you know, he didn't he didn't um, uh, keep that private from anybody who was in his personal life. Should we be surprised that the FBI kept a file on him? He wasn't a, in any way a danger to the the United States. No, um, uh, he wasn't. And yet, you know, from other films that I've worked on, I, I worked on a film about Lorraine Hansberry. The FBI had a file on her. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of artists that uh, the FBI is tracking. And because he is, you know, um, involved in the State Department um, efforts, they, of course, are going to run background checks you know, to know mm -hmm. everything that there is to know about a person. So um, it's it's not terribly surprising to me. Um, I think there was a lot of uh, there are a lot of people who have FBI files on them uh, at that time. I feel sad that the FBI. Well, maybe they do have a file on me. Um, he died. <laughs> check it out. <laughs> he died of AIDS in, in, in 1989. Was that covered up because AIDS uh, 
was seen as something shameful at the time? Yes. I mean, what he says is, you know, he um, he wanted to keep it uh, uh, a secret uh, or he, he did not disclose it in an effort to kind of protect his mother from the stigma of it. But certainly in 1989, um, yeah, I mean, the stigma of of AIDS is is in full throttle. Um, and, and so, you know, he, he lists a, a rare blood disease, uh, which I think, you know, it's intriguing to think about who, you know, who at that time would understand exactly what that, that would mean for anybody in the theater world in New York city at that time, I mean, the arts world in New York city at that time. I mean, everybody knows, you know, that's a kind of code, uh, mm-hmm. I think. Was he still working pretty much up to, until the end? Yes, uh, he was. And that's kind of one of the beautiful uh, aspects of the film that it was nice to include that, um, you know, a dancer, an alien dancer by the name of Sarita Allen shares that, you know, even in the final days when he himself wasn't physically capable of um, moving or choreographing or, you know, doing much, he still, he, he would have them bring a couch into the rehearsal studio so that he could just sit there and be with the dancers and watch them, um, which, you know, I found beautifully poignant because it's an indication of, of, you know, a place that he felt maybe most at home, um, you know, there watching the process, seeing um, a continued effort to, uh, as he says himself about choreography, you know, it's a, you know, create something where there was nothing before these bodies, you know, carving space. Um, and, and I, I sort of love that, that, that that was sort of his hospice in a way was the, was the rehearsal mm-hmm. room. The film begins with Ailey at the Kennedy center awards near the end of his life was receiving that kind of honor important to him. Uh, you know, I don't, I think yes and no. I mean, he's, he's such a, he always strikes me as such a, a humble figure um, that I'm sure he's, he's pretty astonished by it. And yet at the same time, I think he knows how, how meaningful it is for his company and for his dancers to be honored in that way. I can imagine him sort of deflecting uh, the attention on him for that. Um and, you know, it's a, it's a huge honor. Uh, you know, it, it shows that he is truly one of the most, you know, important American artists of the 20th century. Um, and to get that recognition is, is significant. Um, at the same time, it's, um, it's, it's a strange time to be receiving that award because, you know, Ronald Reagan, who is actively uh, working, uh, you know, to ensure what we could call a, a Holocaust of individuals who are suffering from HIV and AIDS uh, is the one presenting him with the award. So there's this like very mm-hmm. cruel irony in that moment. Mm. What happened to the company after he died? It was, uh, you know, passed on to Judith Jameson uh, to lead into the future. Uh, and it's, Really, uh, I think a testament to uh, Mr. Ailey's vision and mission uh, and the love that his dancers had for him, uh, that the company survives uh, today and, you know, is one of the most renowned uh, uh, and largest uh, modern dance companies in the world. Um, There's a real um, commitment to carrying his spirit and his love of dance, his love of the arts, his belief that 
it was something that should be accessible to everyone. Uh, and, and, um, uh, they carry it forward. Um, you know, and there are very few, uh, choreographer, uh, you know, led companies that, that survive the, the passing of their choreographers, uh, modern dance companies that survive the passing of their, uh, choreographers. Uh, and, you know, I think, um, you know, for black people in particular, there are very few, um, you know, black institutions that outlive their founders as well. So, um, and I think all of that is again, a testament to his spirit. And even today, when you walk into, um, the Ailey building and I did, my daughter was taking classes there before the pandemic. Um, there is just this kind of, it is a cathedral and there is a sense of his, of his guiding spirit that's there. Uh, that, that everyone 32 years to. after his death. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 anybody, I ask everyone, you know, if you have a chance, you go up there, it's an extraordinary building and just walk into the lobby and feel the kind of energy and, and sensation uh, that's in that space. It's remarkable. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Jamila Wignut, who is the director of a new film called Ailey that's opening uh, tomorrow in a number of different places in New York. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But uh, I want to get back to Judith Jameson. He asked her to, to take over as artistic director. Did she just continue his vision for the company? No, I mean, I think she brought in her, her own um, innovations. I think she expanded <laughs> the company uh, tremendously. Um, I think, uh, you know, in a way there's the ALA chapter and the, and the Jameson chapter um, of the of the company itself. Um, I think it comes into a kind of extraordinary and robust and financially uh, healthy place uh, under her stewardship. But I think she understands uh, that, that it was, you know, she was in service of his vision um, and she, and she makes that clear, you know, each time uh, that you speak to her uh, and it's, and it's incredible to, for, to encounter someone like Miss um, Jameson, who has so totally dedicated her life to ensuring the continued legacy um, of this man, who really, though you know, um, saw something in her. I mean, I love that anecdote that she shares in the film. That um, you know, she she bombs an audition, um, and that's when he. It's after she bombs an audition that he calls her. <laughs> And says, hey, I want you for the company. He saw something um, in her and her physicality uh, and um, her, her actual look. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a kind of giving back uh, that's, quite, that's quite beautiful. Robert Battle is currently the company's artistic director. Is Judith Jameson still involved in the, cult, in the company? She is. She is the um, the emeritus artistic director um, of the company. But, you know, I think she um, and it's clear why. I mean, Robert Battle, you know, is is doing, you know, extraordinary things uh, with the company under its leadership. There's um, an art uh, an artist in residence now, Jamar Roberts, who's a, a young choreographer who's making beautiful dances with the company. Um, I think she really is 
you know, wanting to to pass the torch. But but, you know, she led the company for such a long time that it's that, uh, you know, she's she's still very much there. But it, it's it, you know, by my by my light of it, she's she's definitely trying to, <laughs> um, you know, allow it to become the, the Robert Battle led company. And she tapped him. So. It well, how sense. much has it if he came back? Uh, and saw the company. If Alvin Ailey came back and saw the company, would he say, what have they done? Or would he say, oh, they've maintained my vision? I mean, I don't think he, I think he would be blown away. I mean, that mm -hmm. building on that corner, his name is on, you know, there's a street in New York City named after him. I think he would be just um, totally blown away. Um, mm -hmm uh by it um and i think he would be excited by all the the kind of ancillary work that the that the company does you know there was a real kind of educational component um and and this again this this real kind of mission driven um idea of arts and the access to the arts so the ailey school uh the fact that there's a program at fordham um, you know, that the, that the Ailey camps are still going on, that the, the company has, um, you know, arts programs in every New York City school. Um, you know, I mean, I just think there's just this way that they are continuing to engage the community and continuing to bring in audiences that um, I think those are the parts of it that he would be, um, you know, most delighted by. Is it still mainly dedicated to performing the Ailey classics or uh, is it also a place where young choreographers can do their new work? Uh, it is the latter. I mean, from the beginning, it was a um, modern dance repertory company, which meant that they never, the company never only danced uh, Mr. Ailey's works. They were always um, staging works by, you know, um, choreographers from the past. So for, you know, the company has done Catherine Dunham works, they've done Lester Horton works, um, they've done, you know, um, they've staged certain kinds of um, ballets, I believe. Uh, but also, yes, he very much wanted to leverage his platform um, in order to, to give younger choreographers, um, you know, an entryway. And I think that's, you know, it was always about kind of, uh, turning down, you know, turning around on that ladder and pulling the next person up. And so it's intriguing, you know, in our film, we get to see that through Rennie Harris, the mm -hmm. choreographer that the company tapped to stage um, a one hour ballet inspired by Mr. Ailey's life and times. And he's using, uh, you know, it's hip hop dance technique um, that he's using, but also, you know, you hear from Bill T. Jones um, who recounts, you know, Mr. Ailey saying, Hey, you know, I'd love to come and have you stage a, a dance work that you do on my company. And, and again, Bilty Jones works in a totally different um, dance language. So it's, it's avant-garde and experimental and not in any way, shape or form what, um, like the kinds of dance works that Mr. Ailey does. Um, but he, he wanted, um, again, I think in an effort to expose audiences to a wide range of dance, um, to the full sweep of what dance um, was and could be. And I think also for his dancers, he wanted them to have, have to kind of have a versatility um, in terms of, of their language. And so um, there was always that both, both sides, the past and the future. You said that Rennie Harris is choreographing a new dance about Alvin Ailey's life. 
has that piece been performed or is it still? Yes, yes, yes. So that's the the contemporary um, dance work that we profile in the in the documentary is a piece called Lazarus. And it was performed uh, for the company's 60th uh, anniversary at City Center. So um, it was performed then. And um, as I understand it, it will be part of the repertory uh, for this coming uh, season when the Ailey Company returns to City Center this December, hopefully, and <laughs> um, we all get to have a uh, live performance again, and then they'll take it on the road nationally and internationally. And you mentioned Bill T. Jones is in the film, probably one of our most important choreographers today. Mm. How did Ailey influence younger dancers and choreographers? Did they see him as a pioneer who paved the way for them? Um, very much so. Uh, I think um, Bill T. Jones saw Mr. Ailey as a pioneer who paved the way for the possibilities of younger Black choreographers. Um, although, you know, Bill T. Jones doesn't work in the model of Mr. Ailey, um, I think his, um, you know, it's really Merce Cunningham um, and that school of, of modern dance that he, he sort of is more in that lineage. Um, but certainly I think he understands that there could be no um, Bill T. Jones were it not for somebody like Mr. Ailey, who kind of went through that door first and then held it open, right? <laughs> so that well, other what do people you could come through. What do you see as Alvin Ailey's legacy now, 30 years later? You know, for me, it is always about the kind of emotional experience uh, that I witness on stage, uh, you know, on the stage when I go and see the company perform this kind of visceral evening, this, this, this journey and really this, the centering of, um, you know, the lives that black people lead, not the things that shape, um, uh, that can shape black life. So I love that he's centering, uh, the human experience, uh, that, that black people have. And I love when you look at that stage, the range of emotions that, that, you know, is possible to express, that certainly the freedom that you see on that stage to be angry, to be vulnerable, to be afraid, to be filled with, you know, uncontainable joy to, to, um, to give off a sense always of possibility. Um, and I think that, that, that centering um, of a kind of, there's a message of, self-love and self-acceptance. I think Mary Barnett in our film says it best, you know, this, this idea of I am, you know, standing in your own being um, and saying through your body and through your movement, I am. Um, and I, I think that's, that's the, the powerful um, reminder that he gives me personally. And, and, you know, I've come to think too, that because it's such a recurrent theme, in in his dance works it's something it was a message he needed in life i think his dances were ways for him to process of course the things that um he was going through and feeling and 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 a kind of storytelling he wanted to have but because that sense of finding your way to self-love um is so much a part of it um you know i think i think he as a human on the planet needed needed that message as well now, we have no time left, but I did want to point out that there'll be some Q&As after the screenings tomorrow and Saturday, uh, at the both at Film at Lincoln Center and at the Angelica Film Center. Uh, Robert Battle will be talking after one of the screenings, Sylvia Waters after another one. Um, 
and uh, I, I assume that people who are listening who are really in love with dance will want to participate in that and uh, if you can't get to any of them uh, you pointed out that next year the your film will be broadcast on uh, PBS's American Masters series so yes <laughs> lots, lots of opportunities of to see this film <laughs> and I thank you so much for being on our show today Jamila Wignot who is the director of Ailey uh, opening tomorrow and then later I guess uh, touring around the country Yes, uh, beginning August 6th, uh, it will open uh, nationwide. Fabulous. Thank you again. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview, and to live engineer Reggie Johnson and Leonard Lopez at large executive producer Jesse Lent for all of the ex excellent work that they do throughout the week. If you would like to hear more about one-hour interviews of, on one subject, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And we're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. Or you, and you can also find links to our more than 500 past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, you can email me at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Now, before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content because WBAI is supported 100% by listener donations. If you tune in regularly to Let It Locate at Large, please go online right now to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station, the only one on New York Radio that's entirely listener-sponsored on the air by making a tax-deductible donation. And uh, consider... Uh, becoming a sustaining member, a BAI buddy, $10 a month, $15 a month, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, and you can stop it at any time, but it, it, it gives us a little cushion. I'm sure you can understand we need your help now more than ever after all the difficulties of the past year. My great thanks to everyone who's already stepped support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Judy Battalion will discuss her book, The Light of Days, the untold story of women resistance fighters in Hitler's ghettos, soon to be made into a Steven Spielberg movie.